Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found the probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside Div 2, Coach of the Year and Defending Men's National Champ, now at the helm of the women's program at Loyola Marymount, Chris Shamides. Chris, how are you today? Very good, Kev. How are you? Good, my friend. Today on OTB, we catch up with Professor Stephen Bank. He is uh, he's turning out to kind of be a semi-regular on the show here, as there seems to be a lot of um, a lot of intersection between legal matters and this game we love. And uh, none are more groundbreaking than the historic, uh, to me, somewhat surprising outcome as U.S. soccer reached an agreement with the Players Association of its two senior national teams on a new collective bargaining agreement uh, equal pay um uh and it's pretty historic so for the first time chris uh u.s soccer will pool portions of prize money it receives from fifa so and they're very different amounts so the money goes to the federations not the players though and the federations are free to do what they want with the money and uh, the prize money will be split split equally between the players on the two national teams that's pretty amazing to to me what are your thoughts yeah, I mean, it's unprecedented. Yeah. So yeah. we're the first country to do this. And uh, it all comes down to TV rights. And that's where the money is. Uh, and there's just a lot more on the men's side of that. You know, so for them to put the pots together and share it, uh, it's groundbreaking. It's groundbreaking, but the big sacrifice is on the men's side, don't you think? Yes. Yeah, yeah uh, it, it really yeah. is. You know, when they say this, it's this big uh positive step for women which i agree with but uh, again i think the the pr is coming out that it's it's all the women's vic- victory and it was sort of like the men are sharing greater revenues with the women's team um and you know the, the other thing that's con- confusing is it's pretty convoluted in the sense that it it pays for so many things down the line uh which impacts you you know with the young youth players and things all these programs. So the argument wasn't as simple as it was stated. So, uh, you know, we have our guest today, Stephen Banks, uh, his professor, and it will be great for him to sort of break it down and see how this happened. Cause I'm a little, I'm a little surprised, but I'm, I'm kind of happy, I guess. I'm kind of happy. It takes that whole sting out of the argument. And now I think that the pressure becomes, can the women make a domestic league work in this country? Cause that's where it all is. Um, I think that's the only reason men have had progress for the struggle that they had to keep a professional league viable in this country, which is quite an uphill battle, uh, especially with the sports environment. So many teams yeah. already. So. It's been uh, unbelievably growing on the women's side. I have some contacts in Spain who have, you know, sent me some texts with, you know, hey, I'm at the Madrid game. Hey, I'm at the Barcelona game, meaning the women's game. And there's 91,000 people there. Are you, you kidding know? me? That's awesome. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Now, I, ho- I hope that doesn't affect you know a lot of the a lot of people coaches including yourself have talked about how european uh teams their national teams are technically starting to pass the united states um you know had the great sort of title nine and all the advancements that this country has um i hope they don't catch up to us that's the problem it's almost well, like uh, MLS yeah. producing all these great central american players that we have to face in qualification 
Yeah, I think when we had Julie Foudy on, she she touched on that, right? It's like there's more and more countries now that are slowly catching up. So the the parity is increasing in terms of who who can actually win a World Cup. Okay, maybe that's not a huge number, but the gaps are closing. And every it seems like every four years that there's a World Cup, there's at least one more team that could potentially win it. So, you know, like just going back to what I was saying, it's like when that when that contact of mine sends me that text, I'm thinking in my head, oh, because I've been to Camp Nou and I've seen when you're at Barcelona what that looks like when, let's say, yeah. Messi's playing. So I'm thinking, OK, he's at a Barcelona game and he is, but it's not the men, it's the women's side. Women's side and, yeah. and this weekend they have the Champions League uh, in Italy for the women's final, you know, and so they had a huge crowd as well. So it's an amazing time that's for good. women's soccer. And that's that's again what we talked about with Julie Foudy is the women had so much more on their shoulders. I mean, the men, I think, have more competition worldwide. Obviously, it's not even close. But the women have the pressure of uh, going to these countries where women's rights are just, you know, stomped upon and horrible, and they're not allowed to play, or they're just starting to play. They're not supported when they do play. They have like the whole world on their shoulders. So I'm glad that this sets a precedence. Um, and I always say follow the money, but not in this situation, not in this situation. It wasn't the money. It was just uh, overall fairness, I guess. And uh, Yeah, and, and, but, but that speaks to why those pots are different when it comes to the TV rights, because when you have so many countries who are not providing a proper ramp for the women's game, then it becomes impossible for the women to earn what the be- what our best women uh it's impossible them to earn what our best men are earning because the markets right. are different but it's not a fair landscape so u.s soccer stepped in and said i'm saying the, the global landscape may not be fair but we're going to make it fair in our world and that you know and again the men are making most of their money their salaries from their club teams which speaks to the strength of not only our domestic league but now you know a lot of american players women players are going abroad like you said to, to barcelona arsenal all these places so um, so I'm back in LA, dude. I have been on the road for two weeks. It has been <laughs> quite a grind. I don't know if you've flown lately, but I was talking to our producer Ken and Courtney be- and uh, before we got on and about travel. Now, I mean, you fly. It's like being on a. It's like being in a bus station. For God's sake, just you know, like with a. It's like there's homeless people on the plane, uh, and no one dresses up anymore. I was always told to wear a blue blazer when I when I traveled as a kid because you're in public, people are seeing you. And, uh, I, you know, I'm looking at the outfits that people have on. It's like, you know, you're like, first of all, the uh, like you got the guy in the, the shorts that are too short and flip flops. He's like 50 years old with a beer belly and a Hawaiian shirt. I'm like, dude, if one of your balls pops out on the flight, I'm just going to be horrified. I'm going to I'm going to exit the plane immediately. Um, so you got the, the the guys are doing that. You got women now wearing sl- uh, slippers. You know, I guess. And uh, one woman yeah. was was trying to paint her nails and fingernails behind me. I'm like, I had to ring the buzzer. I'm kind of like, you know, which I hate doing. I'm like, are you out of your mind? This is toxic fume. Like she's getting she gets all indignant. Are you going to paint your nails behind me? What do you, you know, I, what airline were you on that you had a buzzer? <laughs> no, you know the bell. Yeah, you ring the bell for the uh, that was the buzzer. Like, that was, I wouldn't even, that'd be a trolley, I think. Uh, hey, pull it. Pull the cord. Get the conductor. Get to get back. What did you say when the flight attendant came by? No, look, I would have normally turned on and go, hey, man, what are you doing? But you're not supposed to talk to the other people, you know, because it'd be confrontational. So I had right. to go, hey, Rule man. number one, don't talk to another human. Yeah, and I'm like, hey, the, the chick behind me is painting her nails. And, you know, flight attendants love when you say chick. It uh, seems to go over <laughs> well. <laughs> but I'm looking at girl, women in slippers, men dressed like like 14-year-old boys. Uh, what else you got, uh, 
you get the guy with the pants down to below his butt, this whole, you know, and I'm like, I don't want to, you're walking in front of me. I don't want to see your underwear. I don't want to see anybody's underwear. Unless it's a woman into the top of a thong. That's a different story. Maybe that's a sexist thing, but uh, um, people just, just don't, just, just don't dress up, man. It was horrible. Um, yeah. The so, days of uh, going to a major league baseball game and everyone's in a blazer and a tie and a nice hat. Uh, we were only like, whatever, 60 years away from that, 70 years away from that. And now we're like on flights and you're, you're dressed like you're on your couch. I mean, we, we, this country is, we've lost our way. My friend. Right. And you know, I dated an Italian girl years back in New York city and she could not believe, and you know, you're Italian, you have some roots back there. Yeah. She could not believe that women, American women in New York city wore their sneakers to work. And then they get to work and they put their high heels on. She's like, you're in the public. You, you, you're out in the public. You wear the heels in the public. You go to work, you, you put the sneaker on. I'm like, that's that's interesting. The Italians, it's all about the style when you're yes. out in public, not yes. when you're at the workplace. So she's like, I would not be caught dead in, in the subway with the with the sneaker. With the sneaker. <laughs> so so I broke up and uh, <laughs> I like it the sneaker. I like it the sneaker. So uh interesting weekend, dude. I gotta say the Premier League was just so exciting this weekend. Um, you know, to the very last goal. And it looked like uh, Stevie G's boys were going to pull it off and beat Man City with Coutinho's second goal. And then they came back with three goals so quickly. Um, But my complaint is that I have Peacock. I have a subscription to Peacock, right? So I should be able to watch the games. But the Liverpool game was on USA Network. Yes. And so you couldn't get it on Peacock. I don't get it. The subscribers should be able to use the service to watch any game they want, not if it's on tele. I'm 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 in an airport. I can't yeah. watch. Yeah, uh, you should have rung the buzzer. Um, I should have. Yeah, where's I mean, where's I, the trolley master when you need him? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, they put as many games as they could across all their platforms. So what did they have on Peacock? They had the Leeds game, right? Yeah, the Chelsea game, Man City game, um, the Leeds game earlier. You know, you could watch about three or four games on Peacock. But the, the game I wanted to see, I wanted to see Man City. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to see Liverpool. Uh, because well, those all those games, games were so i had it the other way without going into peacock i i had the liverpool game the city game uh the arsenal game all those games that we had access to across the different platforms but we didn't have the leads game unless you had peacock so that was the game that was missing i kind of understand that maybe because jesse's there as an american coach they weren't yeah that, that game there but but we were able to see on quote-unquote basic tv your your liverpool and your city but yeah, no, I had DVR stuff going on right, and then right. eventually sat down later in the day and like parked myself for the joyride that it was because you had amazing. The, the first place was up for grabs, not just between two teams, but two of the greatest teams in recent history and arguably ever two ever, yeah. clubs ever, uh, yeah. teams ever going toe to toe. They've again lost the league now by one point. And, and, and as great as Liverpool is, they've only won the league once in the last five years, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and then you're fighting for the Champions League spot. Happy to see, for me personally, Antonio Conte, the coach of Tottenham, come in mid-year and bring them all the way up to a Champions League spot is an amazing coaching job. Uh, he, turned the, he turned them around, man. They, you know, With all that yeah. potential that they had, they just seemed tired and beat up, uh, distracted by Harry Kane, talking about leaving. And he's such a team player, brings so much, can hold the ball, can finish. Um, in so many different ways that this seems like he recommitted to the club 
enjoyed Conte being, you know, brought and Son has scored a bunch of goals. He was up for the golden, you know, boot. I, I think I, it's, yeah. it's, I love when a coach actually turns it around and turns it around having the guys play in a certain way. They were, they were a counter team basically. Um, Cause, and, and if you go back, I was, you know, shit on Sam Allardyce because he, they would just keep, they would just park the bus, kick anything that moves. If it didn't move, kick it till it does move. And it was like, and, and now we, we didn't get relegated. It's like, Oh man, you did a disservice. And on that note, Jesse Marsh, man, he keeps him up. Yep, keeps leads yep. up. Uh, the reaction where he just literally goes to ground when that final goal gets scored, you know, and just goes on to just falls on his back, you know, and the immense, relief pressure all that stuff uh, you have so many thousands of leeds fans across england and the world who exhale at that moment and they get to stay up and an american gets to do it and you know he has this extra thing on his plate which bottom line is you know we as american coaches want a coach in the premier league it's great for us to have someone like that and 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 pave a a, a path forward that that bob bradley started now jesse's going forward with and if he gets relegated it's a bummer right what would he probably get back to the premier league in a year or two yeah probably um but to stay up is, is so dramatic and fun well, i think ted lasso was the first coach in the premier league wasn't he He was yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love an actor too <laughs> he was hey football soccer um yeah a great job i and you know i said watching them play they played with a lot of heart uh they i think they'd be in the middle of the table they'll be in the middle of the table next year that's my prediction with jesse he's a he's a motivator It'll be interesting to see which players he's able to keep, uh, who will get sold on, you know, the summer windows open now. So it'll be interesting to see. All right, cool. All right. Well, we got a lot to talk about with the good professor. Um, big agreement between the national teams uh, and U.S. soccer. So uh, let's unpack it with the professor. Uh, when we come back, you're listening to Over the Ball. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. All right, joining us now, he is a professor of business law at UCLA School of Law, a frequent commentator uh, on soccer law issues. He applies his uh, business and tax experience in regard to legal affairs. He explores these issues in depth uh, in his course on international and comparative sports law, as well as his perspective seminar on law, lawyering, and the beautiful game, uh, a book that I wrote as well. Uh, you are the perfect dude to talk to today, Professor Bank, uh, because of the agreement. Welcome back to Over the Ball. How are you? Uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, you know, we you have such a rich soccer background and not just legal and all the things that we talk to you about. But, uh, you know, your brother was a player, your your son's being recruited, the kids played, your daughter that plays, you're involved, um, you know, locally and, and nationally. But so this is really interesting. You have you have boys, you have a girl. Uh, this agreement um, to me seemed like a bit of a surprise. It seemed like it was going down. I think I think what I was going to say to you was there's the law. Then there's the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, and then the emotional element of what's happening here. And I don't mean that in a sexist way, because there was emotions on both sides that were just sort of overblown. And you were saying at the end of the day, well, legally, this is legal. It's And emotions aren't really counted, I guess. Um, but what are your thoughts on the agreement, this historic agreement that's been made? So I, I would start uh, by saying, just as background, um, this this wasn't a surprise in the sense that it's been it, 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 it's been clear for a long time that U.S. soccer was losing the public relations battle, mm -hmm. even if they were potentially winning, and they were winning at various stages the legal battle. So, and that's the big issue here. So when you say it's a surprise, 
it, it might be a surprise if you're literally sitting in a room and you're looking at the the, the rulings and you're saying, you know, they've got a pretty good case, right? They might win this case. They want it at the district court. You're always better off winning at the district court and then hoping that, you know, the appellate court won't overturn it. It's always a difficult task to get the, the appellate court to overturn. So in that sense, U.S. soccer was perhaps in good shape, but they were in lousy shape from a public relations standpoint and right. from an employee relations standpoint, right? They had players who were unhappy. They had um, the, the media was unhappy. Fans were unhappy. This is not good business. So uh, like many things, you settle. And that's what businesses do all the time. They settle lawsuits, even if they think they can win. The only time it makes sense to take a lawsuit all the way to the mat, you know, the final case is when you want to send a message to future uh, litigants, don't mess with us. And that's not really what U.S. soccer needed to do yeah. here. They needed to get a collective bargaining agreement. And so they would legally um, um, stop this and they're not going to have, you know, future random people just, just sue them. So this was a good result in the sense of uh, closure. They needed that. Um, the the so think about it not from U.S. soccer's perspective but generally uh, it's a big deal. Um, this is the first true equal pay deal, or at least an attempt to get equal pay in the world. Um, there have been announced uh, deals in, in Australia, in uh, Ireland, in Norway, in Brazil. Uh, these are not real equal pay deals. They're equal pay with respect to what the national team pays on its own but not with respect to the World Cup prize money. That's always been the toughest part because FIFA pays dramatically more for the men's World Cup than they do for the women's World Cup. It's uh, 10 to one really, you know, 40 odd million uh, in, in the last World Cup to 4 million for the men, 4 million for the women. So it's a big deal. Um, most of the deals before have been something like a percentage. So we each get 50%, 50% of 4 million is not the same as 50% of 40 million. So, uh, um, so that's huge, uh, and it is um, it's unique in the legal sense because while Australia, for example, negotiated an equal pay deal that they called equal pay, it was uh, Australia has one union for all the players. So the men and women are in the same union. This is two separate unions. Um, so I know this sounds scary to, to you, Kevin, and perhaps for the others, but that's a lot of lawyers. Right. You have yeah. two unions. They each have their own legal team. You have U.S. soccer with its own legal team. A lot of billable hours there. I mean, it's just. Yeah, it reminds me of my divorce. Stop exactly. talking about it. I mean, this is this is. <laughs> but this is as if you were divorcing two people, you know, I mean, so this is a really. Big well, I, li I lived in Utah, so it's a possibility. Right. It's a possibility, right. <laughs> so um, so this was um, so this was unique legally. Um, and that's what actually made it a, a really hard case uh, to to litigate and to win because you had two unions negotiating two extremely different um, collective bargaining agreements with different uh, compensation structures. One had guaranteed pay, one did not. So that's a big um, challenge. And so when you to meld those two requires both sides to make compromises. Um, the women gave up the um, guaranteed pay, right? They don't have the guaranteed salaries. The men are giving up potentially a big payout from FIFA. Um, yeah. But they got they both got something in return. So we can talk more about that, but that's the, um, so in that sense, it's all a, a very big deal and it's good for closure. It's good for Cindy Cohn um, and probably helped get her um, over the line for the presidential election. In March. Yeah. Yeah. She's done a great job. Chris. Yeah. My question, Stephen, is like on the mechanics. I normally, I would ask this question of Kevin, but he dropped out of law school years ago. <laughs> the, the mechanics of brokering a deal like this, uh, when you have two unions, how does that work? Is, is there a neutral party that speaks to U.S. soccer, the the men's group and the women's group, or is it mediator? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, 
so they had mediator for the for the litigation, um, but they but neither side was very interested in what the mediator had to say. So from this perspective, typically you can bring in an NLRB, National Labor Relations Board mediator, when there's a collective bargaining impasse, potential strike. Um, MLS did that years ago in 2015 when they signed a new collective bargaining agreement. That wasn't the case here, um, even though they were definitely at an impasse. That is, um, the men didn't, they, they were working off of um, just a continuation of the 2008, uh, the world, the, the collective bargaining agreement that, that expired in 2018. The women were working off a deal that, that expired at the end of 2021. Uh, so they did not have a neutral party uh, other than U.S. soccer. And that was actually one of the interesting politics of this. If, you know, for those of you, um, this may be getting a little too highbrow, Kevin. You can cut me off here, but yeah, it, just I'll start to I'll start to drool. <laughs> for, for those of you in the um, you know in the audience who are kind of poli sci or economics experts, it's sort of a game theory issue. You've got two parties. You've got U.S. soccer is trying to pit the men and the women against each other. And so that's why back in September, U.S. soccer offered, we are offering identical deals to both. You guys work out the World Cup prize money. And that makes, the, the idea was they were going to make the men look like the bad guys. Because if the men are the only part stopping the women from getting their deal, that makes the men, you know, politically okay. look bad. Um, then the men are are trying to make the women look, you know, the theory would be the men would try to get the women to be the bad guys or the U.S. soccer to be the bad guys. I mean, it's, a, it's an attempt to strategize as to how to get leverage over each of them. So they did not have that third, that neutral third party. I think that um, if anything, then the, the, the neutral side here was sort of the common enemy. I, I actually do think that they looked at this as the common enemy is, is <clears throat> fans, you know, that the fans were going to revolt. <clears throat> if yeah. we didn't, um, you know, if we didn't come to something. So the men had the risk that they were going to be perceived as really bad guys in the yeah. media. The women had the result that they were teetering on the line. Um, and, and frankly, they, they may have gone over it a little bit. Yeah, they overplayed um, the Losing hand. favor with, mm -hmm. with people. Because the reason why U.S. soccer had a contested presidential election in March is because the youth soccer officials in all these states in many states were saying, what is Cindy Cohn doing for us? She's basically bargaining away money that could be going to youth soccer or adult amateur soccer is instead going to settle this deal for basically the top uh, you know, 25 players on the men and the women's side. And that's mm -hmm. going to make the women look bad, right? If the women are holding out for more than they could get. So if they held out for the full 60 odd million that they were originally trying to get, that would be a, um, you know, a, a, a potential problem for for them so both sides were at risk of pushing their luck and it, so I it, think it, there was no neutral mediator here it seemed like a couple of times the guys didn't take the bait um they sort of gave like a, a nice neutral kind of pro-women response and it was u.s soccer that was dealing with the public relations problem uh, u.s so here's what the men did their, their strategy initially and this is all a lesson in negotiations their initial strategy was absolutely we agree the women should be paid the same as us it's not our job to come up with the money. You know, we agree they should be paid the same as us. So that's portraying U.S. soccer as the problem. Then U.S. soccer, I think, credibly convinced people, um, for the most part, that they weren't not sitting on a pot of, you know, of, of the 40 million, which is the missing money that, you know, they would have gotten from if, if the man had won the World Cup. They weren't sitting on that pot of money. Like, it wasn't like they could just create that. And then, frankly, they'd go bankrupt. Um, you know, yeah. and as a nonprofit declare bankruptcy. And so that was actually the, 
the nuclear option, I suppose, is that U.S. soccer says we okay we lose, but we're going to go bankrupt, and then you guys got get nothing. And so, I think people recognize that. I think even I think the women and the men recognize that that you the real problem the 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 legal issue here is is that the women were suing for potential. If the men had won, they would have gotten this money. Men didn't win. We should get paid the same as what they would have won if they'd won. But you. U.S. soccer can't give away the money they don't have because the men didn't win. Right, right. So it was always the pathway to solution. I, I may have even mentioned it on the show. I definitely mentioned it in Twitter. Um, the only way to think about the case is what money does U.S. soccer get and can it divide it up equally? Because there's a myth um, that I think the women had kind of sold a little bit that basically FIFA was paying money to the players. I mean, when I say they weren't selling, it wasn't like they were lying. It was just that the perception the average person gets is FIFA pays prize money and the players get the prize. The prize right. is actually for the federation, for and all for, the work they've done in producing a, you know, from youth all the way up to. A yeah, day. the programs for the kids and stuff. And, and, I remember, and you know, know, referee training, coach training, uh, right. everything FIFA, you know, every U.S. soccer does helps build a program and this is the crowning achievement. And so the money has always gone to the Federation. It's a question of the Federation splitting it up, which is what ultimate solution they came up with. Yeah, and people I think didn't know that. And it felt to me like US soccer started to spin the kids argument there to say like, oh wait, this funds all kinds of other things. And George Carlin used to have a bit going, uh, when somebody starts talking about the kids, watch out, somebody's getting screwed somewhere over, you know, for something. Um, but there, there's a couple of things. You mentioned it earlier. Um, First of all, it's like there were different agreements. So there was a contribution to the domestic league, right, uh, from U.S. soccer. I think $10 million was the, the amount. There were guaranteed contracts for the women, which the men didn't have. Uh, there was a maternity leave for the women that obviously that, well, the men, you know, should have as well, too, I guess. Maternity, or how were any of this, those issues? Were they, were they put on the table as well? So, well, clearly the women gave up uh, uh, several things. They gave up mm -hmm. the, um, they gave up back in December the, the requirement of guaranteed salaries, the allocated salary payments to the um, the women's national team players who played in NWSL. The national and, and let me just ask you a question there. Just stop me for a second, because to have a guaranteed contract as a player takes the power away from the coach, I think, to say to make cuts. Uh, and you look at the men's team, it's this rotating roster of players from all over the world. I think it did a disservice to maybe some of the younger women coming up. Um, yeah, I'm actually curious of how much of a concession that really is, because the global market now they can okay, maybe they have to leave the United States, but you know we're we're seeing more and more success in Europe of these teams that are paying women higher salaries now. So I wonder if that's considered a bigger concession. There's no question that you know this deal start this this controversy starts in 2016 legally with a with a complaint filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the U.S. Um, between 2016. In 2022, how, how does this deal get resolved? Partly gets resolved because NWSL gets more financially secure, increased expansion opportunities. Europe has a dramatic increase in, in, um, uh, in teams and in, in teams that are willing to spend. Even uh, Mexico, uh, and which has a player, Mia Fischel went from U UCLA to uh, Mexico, uh, that has started to become a more viable option. So as you increase the options for women to play, that's always been the real inequality lying beneath the surface of the national teams. The national teams and every other country don't get paid, right? They don't, I mean, when I say they don't get paid, they don't get paid like, like a, 
like you're an employee, they get bonuses, they get, uh, you know, for playing, they get, they get awards and things like that and per diems and all that stuff, but they don't get salaries. The reason U.S. soccer started doing this is because, you know, back in the day, um, uh, you know, and this is long ago. Um, so like my day, you're, you know, Kevin, I suppose your day. Is hey, like, hey, don't throw me in your bathtub, pal. You know, hey, you're on know. your own. <laughs> I'm a little older, maybe. All right. No, um, no. But, but, you know, there was no, there was a period of time when there was no league or really no viable league for men. And there certainly was not for women. Right. So U.S. soccer had to create its, uh, it, the, the, opportunity for players to play full-time and become real professionals so that they could credibly represent the United States in the international competitions. That, um, that doesn't exist in other countries because there's no reason for it. And so the club environment had to develop. And what happened is Major League Soccer had a big head start and the women had several failed leagues. And it wasn't until U.S. Soccer got involved with the most recent NWSL and and Canada and Mexico also got involved. They agreed they'd pay their top players to be in those leagues, that those leagues were at least able to get a, sort of a runway to develop some, um, some stability. Now, NWSL um, stability is, I think, is measured in months, not years right yeah, now. Yeah. They, they, they have had some recent problems, um, but they are absolutely better than they were. And, um, and they're, they're growing in popularity for sure. I mean, in, in Los Angeles, Angel City is drawing huge numbers of fans. So that's all good news. Um, but that, that combined with Europe really makes this deal possible. And so um, even when you mentioned, Kevin, uh, things like maternity leave and insurance, a lot of the reasons the women um, gave up a little bit of insurance benefits, but they didn't need it anymore because they, they had actual teams that were paying. They negotiated this with the NWSL new CBA. Which like the men. In April. So they, they got some of the benefits through their league, which is what the reason why, I mean, major league soccer uh, players would have needed benefits if they didn't have a league too, but it just, they right. didn't, have, they had already gone down that road. So some of this is, is equalization at the club level allows for more equal pay opportunities at the national team. So it, it looks like it's kind of Cindy Parlos had the wisdom of Solomon here and sort of made both sides a little much happier. And also they gave up stuff as well. And I guess what, what was Churchill's quote there with, you know, <laughs> When both well, sides are unhappy, you've done the right job. I mean, what here, you know, let's go back to the political problem that Cindy Parlo Cohn had. Um, she was, she has a political problem and a political opportunity. The political problem is, is how do I get the men to agree to potentially give up lots of money? Granted that the men don't need it as much anymore. It used to, in the old days, you'd have mm -hmm. MLS journeyman veteran who were not getting paid that much. Who really, that matters a lot if they were to advance far in the world qualifying. Less so today, many more players coming from Europe who are making lots of money. But <clears throat> the men potentially give up a lot of money, right? And, and as much as this men's national team is like, it's like a perfect storm of players who are willing to do that because they're relatively young. And, you know, you're not dealing with the old guard who said, I, you know, I was paid for like 180000 for six years. I mean, this is like my due, right? I'm the, right. I, they don't have that anymore. They have basically uh, um, high paid players. Um, but they also have a union executive director and union lawyers who are like, you guys are like 22 years old. All right. You need to listen to us. We'll tell you what you need to do. We're not going to like let you sign a deal that you're going to get totally screwed on. And so, right. and, and you know, and we're paying, you're paying us to protect you. Right. So what the deal came out doing is U.S. soccer gave everybody a lot more money. 
right? The, the, the commercial revenue share is the big innovation in this deal, right? They, they, they're getting, uh, they're splitting 50-50, starting out a 10% for this World Cup cycle, 2022 and 2023. And then for the 2026-2027 cycle, 15% of tickets, broadcast revenue, wow. sponsor, um, partner revenue. Um, and remember, you know, the 2026 and potentially 2027 World Cups will both be in the U.S. That was our big, big dollar Huge figure. deal. Huge deal. That, I, I didn't even know that. Chris, did you know that? Yeah, well, I didn't know how it was going to be stepped, but yeah. I obviously, as Stephen's talking, I'm realizing that, yeah, this is going to be in the U.S. in the next cycle, and they're going to crush that financially. Yeah, so it, it is, it's a big, big deal. Uh, it's a, um, uh, so that means that you, you might say the U.S. soccer, U.S. soccer is not at all depriving anybody of money. They're just not giving everybody the windfall, you know, the, the, so that is, this allows them to pay for the money, this site, these two cycles, this contract, um, without depriving youth or adult amateur referees or what have you, uh, because they're just going to grow the grow the, the pie, right? And that's the easy way to solve a problem is we'll grow raise the pie. pie. Yeah, grow the pie. Everybody of the money. Yeah. But that's the that's the truth. So, you know, that's how this deal gets done. Frankly, is is the perfect storm of NWSL. Um, it, it actually wants to be. Uh, in control. They don't want U.S. soccer running NWSL anymore. So get U.S. soccer, which has been when con- subcontracted out to manage NWSL, no longer managing them. Don't want them um, um, running some of the players. It's really governance-wise a, a horrible problem for a league to have the employer of uh, a segment of your, you know, your star players. That's a good point. Yeah. Be, you know, not be loyal to you, but be loyal to this third party. So they all wanted that out. They also were um, better financially with the new, with expansion teams. Europe's better. World Cup's coming. Money is flowing in um, or is likely to flow in, projected to flow in. So they can solve this deal. Next deal is going to be a little harder, but um, but by then, you know, hopefully uh, everything will be continuing to grow and you'll get the spillover effect from- uh, Professor, I feel a lot better after talking to him, don't you, Chris? It seems like, the, you know, it seems like a really- a point in American soccer and world soccer, actually, with our World Cups all coming up, them being here, that the, the biggest market in the world, uh, we're kind of leading the world with, with women's rights and equal pay and this great game that we seem to be discovering and embracing now. So, uh, hey, uh, Professor, I feel a lot better now. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> idea of uh, growing the pot is, is probably going to be what the, the final evaluation on this deal, right? Because I, I think the public perception is solved for U.S. soccer now, but now... The trickle effect of, you know, is, is does the pot grow enough that all the parties under the national team still feel like they're being supported financially, et cetera, et cetera. And then the day that those wells start to dry up a little bit and they're not getting what they used to get, then you'll start hearing those drum beats from another, you know, part of the U.S. soccer landscape. So, you know, the growing of the pot is certainly the answer if they can pull that off. Gee, Debbie Downer, cycle. Debbie Downer, oh, oh, Chris so, Chamonix. So Chris, let me, let me tell you. So one other fact I haven't thrown into the pot here. So I don't think this deal gets done, although people have insisted that's not true, but I, I really don't think this deal gets done if U.S. soccer is, uh, men's soccer is not on the route to qualification mm-hmm. um, in March. Um, now, people insist, insisted to me that's not true. Um I, I think uh, at the very least, here's what would have happened. If, it, if U.S. soccer, if men's national team had not qualified, 
I think they would have said the deal for is a gradual implementation and it'll it'll implement for the 26 27 cycle fully because that's when the men are guaranteed to be in it in 26 right um uh so um you know so you've got to you you know the, but the deal gets signed after march i mean i think if they hadn't qualified you know the men might have rethought this way or, or the women would have rethought this but um you know, there's less money to be made, right? If the, if the U.S. is not, forget about whether the U.S. gets, men would get access to the prize money. I don't, that's not the case. I, I've been told that if either side does not qualify for a World Cup, which right now it's only the women during this deal, because the men have already qualified for 26, mm-hmm. or 22, and they're guaranteed for 26, and the women are guaranteed for neither at the moment. Um, although highly likely they're going to qualify. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I'm told that that was, you know, that was not the issue. The issue is, is that if the men didn't qualify, then the amount of money they're sharing from this, you know, bump in revenue goes down, right? Because the men don't get don't you know, qualify, the, the yeah. soccer's not getting that. It's not even just not qualifying like the prize money. It's that commercially, it's a bad deal, right? You know, the brands don't want to sign on. Now they want to sign on, and now they're like a big push. Sign on in 2022 and go all the way to 2026, and they're going to do hopefully better deals than they signed with Fox, um, you know, for the broadcast rights, because Fox got this like fantastic deal they signed for 2022. Then it turns out they moved the World Cup to the winter. And so they gave him 2026 with a no bid deal. That was not good. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I'd like to do some legal work on that one there, Professor. That that one, that's where you start getting defeats of corruption going on. But but that's what you're looking for is is that there are going to be brands are going to want to sign on. There is some competition. You're, you know, the Olympics are coming, mm. um, but there's some opportunities there, too, because soccer is playing the Olympics. So there's opportunity right. for um, them to double. You know, it's, it's not all I mean, U.S. soccer runs the Olympic program as well. And so there's opportunities to you know, double sponsor. And that's really attractive. And, um, you know, so it's a good there's it's hope. a way in which you can grow money. But 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 one other feature of this that I haven't thrown in. All right. Okay. So it just, it makes you feel better. But is it, now, is this going to be on the test, Professor? I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, it's, the test is growing. Um, I hate your pop quizzes. I hate them. Exactly. Uh, the, the size of the world, the number of teams qualifying for the World Cup is increasing both for the men and the women. Right? If that doesn't happen, then it's also more difficult to get this deal done. Right. Because now you've got almost, um, you feel confident that the U.S. should qualify in men and women going forward because they've increased the size, the number of uh, slots CONCACAF is going to get is such that even after 2026, the men should be qualifying just because there's more teams. Plus the revenues increase because you have more eyeballs, more countries that are interested. Um, so that yeah, that's is good. That's good. See, Professor Bank goes with the positive. Shamities, he always go with the negative. Um, I'm going to end. I'm a realist. With, 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 I'm going to end with the professor. Hey, um, if you don't follow Professor Bank on Twitter, do because he keeps up with all these issues. I don't know how you you find the time because there's so many various machinations happening with all this stuff. But you're always on top of it. Um, let me just ask you quickly before we go here too. Um, you have a son that's being de- recruited, uh, D1 goalkeeper. H- how's that experience? Now you're in Chris Shamity's world, Coach Shamity's. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's look, it's uh, he's he's actually one of the. Uh, um, probably what recruiters would say is, is the, the right mindset mindset is going to, you know, best academic school you can go to the right fit academically, which mm-hmm. means actually D one or D three, probably, um, you know, just, just sort of, sort of terms of the sort of the high end 
academic schools, which are also good soccer schools. But what's interesting um, for me to watch it is uh, the change in how recruiting is done. NCAA, both NCAA has changed its rules. The fight over uh, the 21st century model, question yeah. of whether uh, soccer is year round. I will tell you that um, kids, on, my, my son plays in an MLS Next team. So they play, you know, they're practicing like four days a week. They're playing uh, all over. They're playing year round. Uh, they're looking at college, a lot of them, and they're saying, wait, how many months do you play? Right. And how many practices are you allowed? This is crazy. Uh, and so I will tell you around his team, they're, they're as many um, pro scouts of other countries than there are college scouts. Uh, because when you go into Southern California, you know, it's El Salvador and Guatemala and uh, um, Costa Rica and all these, I mean, all these countries are looking at, at dual nationals just like the US is. And um, in Mexico, they're looking at a ton of these kids, these, you know, in terms of get them down in, into their academies, right? Um, that's the idea. So that's, a, that's, I think, the challenge for college soccer, to be honest. Well, let me ask you this question, because I think it falls to the NCAA at this point, because players, like you say, are now just bypassing the college game completely, especially on the men's side. Uh, and I wonder what NCAA, the NCAA's mindset is, because they're losing some control, especially on the big dominant sports. I wonder if they're going to say, oh, if we don't step up with soccer and go to the 21st century model, uh, we'll completely lose this game. People won't. It'll be club. It'll be club on a D1 level in college, and we've wasted this opportunity. Or, or they're going to say, you know what? We don't really care about soccer. We don't see it as a growth potential. We care about football and basketball, and that's the revenue driver, and, and we'll let them go. Uh, yeah, but that's not the NCAA's mission, Kevin. Like they're 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 a membership organization that is, you know, quote unquote amateur athletics, and it's not about driving revenue necessarily for the non-revenue sports. Uh, it's about providing equal opportunity and play across their membership. And there's hundreds and hundreds of schools across their division. So the idea that they're not developing players for MLS is irrelevant to them. The coaches are now trying to bang that drum and say, hey, look, we need to be, stay relevant and, you know, change and not be outdated with our model. And that's why they're presenting this new model. But, the, you know, there's a lot of hurdles between actually, you know, putting that into place. And I, I think it'll ultimately win out, but not for a lot of those reasons that you're saying. It, that flag is going to fly because of student athlete welfare and the health of situations. No, no, we're, we're making the soccer argument here, but I think, and and rightly and smartly so, I think they've pushed the academic uh, concerns and the physical well-being of the players to play three games a week. You talk about Liverpool is, is complaining about playing three games a week, and these guys are highly paid professionals who don't have to study. Um, yeah, I, I can tell you, I teach an undergrad um, seminar that's in soccer law, so I, I have a little exposure to some of the athletes, and of course, some of the uh, D1 women and men play who play are are you know, in my class over the years. And so I get the weekly forms, you know, or, or monthly forms that are uh, supposed to assess their academic performance and all that. And, and I'll tell you, you know, if a kid's missing a lot of class because they have to leave for a Thursday, Saturday tournament, yeah. split, well, not tournament, but just their normal, uh, you know, uh, Pac-10 tournaments, I guess it's travel schedule. Yeah. I don't know how many teams are right now in the men's soccer. It's I think it's uh, eight, but whatever it is, is you know their tournament cycle, their their uh, travel cycle is like a Thursday, uh, um, Sunday and or Thursday Saturday, and so 
they're missing class. If they can do yeah. once a week and they're just playing on the weekend, professors are happy. I, I can just tell you that right now, professors see it. Your kid's missing, um, you know, especially in a class my mind, it's a discussion-based class. You're not there to discuss. That's pretty difficult. Right, right. You know, but uh, um, yeah, I think that's the, the, the interesting thing. So just on my personal level, so I'm looking mm -hmm. at high level, my son's looking at high level soccer D3s. Right. You know, these, there's a bunch of schools in New England, for example, that are just really strong programs, really strong academic. And they play, uh, you know, high level soccer in the sense of they're competitive about it, you know, and and and, you know, strong academic D1s. Um, and it's hard to make a strong case for the D1 model um, if you're if the school is such a school that like academically is like you don't really care that you're missing for this. You got to you got to keep up, you know. Um, you're, you're talking like Amherst, Williams, Tufts. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about like kind of the NESCAC schools or yeah. the, the conference or, you know, the areas around there. Like if they're competing with, just to use examples and throw out like the the Patriot League or whatever, you know, the right. Bucknell, Lafayette, Lehigh, that was Colgate you know, or yeah. the or the Ivy League. Um, you know, it's the Ivy League actually in some ways opts out. And I think that there is. So if you're going to say what's a future in NCAA, there are going to there might be more schools that either opt, you know, out of NCAA, like we're going to be mega, like in the football, basketball, we're just right. going to throw our own thing, like SEC conference is going to be SEC, you know, um, um, governing body, or uh, it's going to be, um, it might call itself D1, but it's going to be more of a D3 model. Um, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily do scholarships because scholarships aren't, you know, don't pay if you don't have the revenue sports to Right, right, right. Yeah. I think we, we, we've got to have the professor back on for this uh, as it goes down the line. We've had Sasha Sarovsky on from Maryland. He's trying to push this through. And, um, you know, uh, Mike Noonan, a bunch of D1 coaches. So, um, Professor, you have enlightened us this afternoon. Uh, uh, we appreciate it on, uh, on this, uh, this historic agreement and uh, recruiting and, and then the NCA and soccer moving forward. That was a little surprise bonus. Because it's one of my um, one of my concerns as uh, we see this sport marching forward, and like you said, there's a lot of machinations that are various machinations that are that are sort of lying ahead for everyone. So, uh, so we appreciate you joining us on Over the Ball. Good luck with your son in uh, this crazy recruiting process world that we live in. As a sophomore, my God, uh, you know who knows. Um, but thanks for joining us on Over the Ball. We'll talk to you again. Great, thanks for having me. All right, Chris. Well, there's there's a lot to digest there. Whenever I talk to the to, go, to Professor Bank, man, but you seem to have a better handle on it, obviously, because you're you know you're in the trenches now, and especially some of the NCAA talks. So give us a little quick summary for those of us who aren't uh, you know on the genius scale. Yeah. You started to lose me there a little bit at the end. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's fascinating when a professor talks about missed class time because that's the right. pushback that athletics always gets when when they all sit at the table uh, at, at the university level and athletics has the seat, it's the, the professors who speak out about missed class time and the mission of education and how much are we actually educating them when they're going uh, multiple, multiple weekends in a year for and missing Thursdays and Fridays to get to a Saturday game or whatnot. Um, th that starts to add up over time. And so when there's a lot of money being brought in, okay, it makes some sense if basketball and football are, paying so many bills for the university, right. uh, you try to find a balance, you try to make it work. But there's a lot of universities in the NCAA where they, they don't bring in that basketball and football money. So why are we all missing this much class time? So I think that's all kind of coming to a head. 
And we have all this, this new topic of NIL, you know, where the uh, likeness and image rights, and now you're seeing college football talk about that in a big way, uh, and that could trickle down to soccer as well. It, it's, it's potentially dividing the NCAA. And that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, you know, and for me as a player, you know, back in the 80s, going to college when I would miss games for sort of Olympic development or whatever, I'd come in uh, even for, well, even for the school games, right, for the university games, I, I'd, I'd take shit from the professors. I walked in and I'm like, I had three games last week, two were, you know, uh, chancellor's excuses, they call them or whatever. Um Football team had one game a week. They were flying to games. We're taking a bus to games. I, when he, the guy was yelling at me in front of the class, I'm like, hey, hey dude, I'm on the soccer team. We, we're taking vans to games or buses. Um, the women's team's flying, but this football team's pl- practicing once, you know, playing once a week. Um, I felt like we had nowhere to run and hide. I'm like, yeah, they talk about D1 athletics. It's like, we're not getting, you know, we didn't have anything there. It was even harder for us. So I, I like some sort of parody in, in this whole um, – you know, it's good for all. And to understand, like you said, I immediately go with the soccer argument and you came back at me with the academic argument, which is how they're pushing this. And it's legit. It's legit. Yeah, because there is no soccer argument with the NCAA. They're not in the business of developing professional players, which is ironic because it's exact. They are what they do for basketball and football and football, but, but it's not their mission. And so that's become this like side business that has completely floated the NCAA at all levels but it's still not their mission. And so right. that's what they point to when you bring up the soccer argument, Hey, we're not developing players for the pros. Their answer is we don't care about that, yeah, yeah. you know, but if you fly it under the different flag, which is what, you know, Swarovski and Kosarovsky and everyone else is doing, then, then that gets some traction because we're starting to say, Hey, this is healthy. Yeah. That's this is, this is an important time in American soccer. So this is good. You know, talking to the professor, I sort of positive. I forget we've got world cups coming up in this country. Um, this can be really take us over the, the you know, the the hill there that, that we need to be. And then and it's important that the NCA sort of assesses. So hopefully it's happening. Uh, let's leave it on a positive note, Mr. Shamides. Uh, I'm not flying for two days, so I'm very happy. Um, I'm heading to Cincinnati this weekend, uh, the Irish Cultural Center performing Fear of Heights. If anyone uh, is uh, in the Cincinnati area, obviously our buddy Dominic Kinnear, uh, he's on a road trip. Cincinnati, uh, FC Cincinnati is on the road. So I won't, I'm going to go check out the stadium though, because I heard it's beautiful. But uh, Fear of Heights, how do we find out where you're going to be with that? Well, you can go to uh, kevinflynnlive.com. Uh, the Octane Media team is constantly updating it with all of the places I'm appearing. I'm at Cincinnati this week. I'm in Key West uh, the following week, uh, then in Connecticut for a three-day stint at uh, three different theaters up there. So uh, go to kevinflynnlive.com and um, all the information's there under Fear of Heights. So, Everyone's asking, will there be a sequel? Oh, I hope not, man. As I talk about <laughs> the sequels, I'm okay with heights. Uh, well, you know, you're going to have to watch the the one man to see it. And if you're in Edinburgh this summer, August 3rd to the 28th, I'll be in Edinburgh performing at the Fringe there. That's uh, awesome. That's 25 awesome. days in a row. That's a lot of work for a stand up comic. Um, all right, everybody, for uh, for Stephen, for Chris Chamonix and Kevin Flynn, uh, thank you for joining us on Over the Ball. I want to thank our guest, Professor Stephen Bank uh, at UCLA. He's just uh, always so fun to talk to. I mean, we could talk to about a million things. Uh, follow him on Twitter. He keeps you up to date on all these, uh, these legal machinations that are happening with our great game. All right, everybody, we'll talk to you next time on OTB. Mm-hmm.